Welcome to Veterinary Advice, Animal News, and Views, the show dedicated to pets and the people who love them. Brought to you by DrRogerHolisticVet.com, the place for safe and effective natural healing for dogs and cats. Now, here's your host, practicing veterinarian, Dr. Roger Welton. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Veterinary Advice, Animal News and Views. I'm your host, Roger Welton. Back to you since uh, turning 40 just uh, last week. I do appreciate all the wonderful birthday wishes and um, really enjoyed you know, friends and family. Uh, some very dear people came into town and uh, had a great time. But you know, quite frankly, I was tired when it was all done. And I'm happy to get back to work here. Uh, You know, turning 40, certainly you feel like 40. And, um, (laughs) you know, uh, celebrations can can get a little bit uh, tiresome, I guess, in comparison to when I turned 20, for example. But at any rate, uh, thank you very much for your continued listenership. Also, you know, we are in a pre-recorded format still. It's been an incredibly busy summer. And I appreciate your patience. We are going to get back to the live format, but uh, it's been very difficult schedule-wise to be able to make that happen. But, you know, thankfully, I see that the listenership has not gone down at all. You, you all continue to tune in, and I really appreciate that. Tonight, we have a very important topic. We're going to talk about pet anesthetic safety. So safety of anesthesia for your pets. And, you know, is, is, is there a legitimate concern when people... Very often, I'd say one in three people, when I make a recommendation to say, for example, dentistry for an 11-year-old dog, uh, and they say, well, hey, doc, is he too old for that? You know, I, I hear that at least 30% of the time, and, and I want to I explore that a little bit because um, it's a very important, very important uh, discussion point in, in veterinary medicine because I, I think that there is a bit of a disconnect, a little bit of a discord between people's attitudes towards anesthesia and their pets and anesthesia for themselves, which is interesting. I want to talk about where that came from and why it, we, we don't need to think this way anymore, and, and we'll, we'll delve into that. Uh, we do have one email question uh, for, to, for tonight. Now, even though I'm not taking live calls, folks, you know, you're welcome to email me, and we can connect, and I can answer your questions or air your concerns or comments on the air, just like Allison here did from Deerfield, Michigan. Very quickly before I go over her email, the email address for emailing uh, to be addressed live on the show, or I'm sorry, not live on the show, but on the air, is comments at web-dvm.net, comments at web-dvm.net. Feel free to email me anytime. I do want to continue to interact with you to the best of our ability in the pre-recorded format. So Allison from Deerfield, Michigan, this is what she wrote. Dear Dr. Welton, let me start by wishing you a happy belated birthday. Thank you, Allison. I love your shows and listen every time I get a chance. Very good treadmill material. I have a question about my five-year-old Labrador retriever who has developed urinary continence. She sometimes loses her bladder in her sleep. My veterinarian says this is a hormonal deficiency but recommends a drug called Proin. I'm a little confused because if the problem is hormones, why treat with a drug whose active ingredient was the main ingredient in a banned human diet pill? I have read of hormone replacement therapy on forums, but I have learned too well how dangerous it can be to implicitly trust pet forum people with no medical training. Of course, I am inclined to trust my veterinarian, but I would appreciate your feedback before starting Proin. Thanks so much. 
Well, this is a very good and very fair question. Clearly, Allison has done her homework. The active ingredient in Proin is phenylpropanolamine, which was an active ingredient in a, I don't want to say popular, I guess I was too young to even have an opinion. I didn't know it was popular, but I saw the commercials. Dexatrim. I don't know if anybody remembers Dexatrim, but Dexatrim was um, a diet pill that you get over the counter, and I guess it's since gone off the market, and I don't know exactly why. I'm gathering the safety isn't great. I don't know if it's banned. I don't know how accurate that is. But whatever the case, Allison did do her homework. Uh, phenylpropanolamine was the active ingredient in Dexatrim. And for reasons uh, that its, pro- its properties dampened appetite in people and enabled them to lose weight. Well, the same properties, you know, the certain receptors that these uh, phenylpropanolamine stimulates also help to increase the tonicity of the internal urethral sphincter. So the, 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 the condition she's talking about, urinary incontinence, we do see, I don't want to say commonly, but we, we do see it occasionally in, in, you know, most commonly in large breed, middle-aged female dogs. Um, they, they're not aware, when they're awake, they, they, they have full urinary control, but when they're at either in a very restful state or most commonly sleeping, they will lose their bladder on their bed and, and they'll wake up in a, a puddle of urine. So <clears throat> it is hor- from a hormonal defic- deficiency. Some of these dogs uh, are not reacting well to having been spayed and having had that estrogen removed. Sometimes we can cause this problem by spaying them too young. So we like to, sp- if we wait until six months of age, we've reached a level of development where we're not predisposing them to this problem. And sometimes you know, dogs are going to have this problem no matter what you do. So um, we do treat it, and Proin is a treatment of choice and has been for quite a while. There is hormone replacement therapy, and, you know, the, the interesting thing here is we're in the midst of a transition. So previously, the hormone replacement therapy was diethylstilbestrol, DES, and it did effectively replace the estrogen hormone to the degree that it would restore the patency of the internal urethral sphincter would fix the problem. The problem was that occasionally it would cause anemia, which is low red blood cell count, by, because it would suppress the bone marrow. So we didn't want to take the chance with anemia uh, with that particular hormone replacement. So you know we just uh, took that active ingredient, phenylpropanolamine. It's, it's much safer in dogs than it is in people. It does not suppress the canine appetite, and we just dosed it at a level that you know, restored the full function of the urethral sphincter without causing any adverse effects. And it's proven to be quite safe. So in that regard, uh, Allison's veterinarian is, is, you know, pretty much on track. Now, where I may not necessarily go there at this point is that we have a new option. Uh, there is a hormonal replacement thera- uh, therapy called Incurin. It is what's known as an estriol, which is a, a derivative of estrogen. And this is a wonderful new therapy. It's only given once a day. It's made by a pharmaceutical called Merck. And it does it, it, it does the hormonal replacement without the risk of anemia. And it also seems to be overall, even though Proin's quite safe, it seems to have a better safety profile. So I've actually gravitated towards putting my patients on Incurin versus Proin. Um, so you may want to, Allison, just bring up before starting pro and, hey, what do you, what do you think about Incurin? Because this veterinarian on internet radio thinks that, uh, that is, that seems to be 
the better option currently. I've been using it for uh, just about a year now, and I've been very happy with the results and the safety. Um, I just do a complete blood count check once a year, a very inexpensive blood test to make sure everything's fine from a blood count perspective, but the data, it looks really good. The safety seems good. So that's my feedback on that, Allison. I thank you for the happy birthday, and I thank you for contributing to the show and being part of our dialogue here. So let's jump into our topic now. We're talking about anesthesia. So the topic of the show is, is he too old for anesthesia? And I, this is what I commonly get. You know, I, I make the recommendation, no matter what it is, it could be a, a mole that, you know, I'm particularly concerned about because there's been rapid growth or change and I want to take it off and it's on the top of the dog's head and the local block isn't possible. Plus, if there's a cancer risk, I want to do an aggressive resection, not just a, you know, rinky-dick um, resection because, you know, it, it poses the risk of it coming back. So we, we want to do general anesthesia. Or let's say there is a, a dental cleaning that I want to do, pa- patient has stage one or stage two periodontal disease, and I want to get ahead of it before things get serious and we have major bone loss and major health compromise. Well, you know, typically when these things happen, we have an older patient. So we have a senior age patient in most cases. Yes, dentistry we're often doing in young to middle-aged dogs because we want to stay ahead of it, let them keep all their teeth in their mouth for the duration of their lives. That's always preferable. But, uh, you know, in a lot of these breeds, they can be resilient uh, to periodontal disease, especially like our mutts. And you're not making your first dental recommendation until they're eight years old. I mean, we only make the recommendation if we feel they need it. Um, It's not like with us that we're just so proactively getting the every six-month prophylactic cleaning because, you know, the pets just seem a little bit more resistant to the effects of periodontal disease, or not just, not the effects of periodontal disease, but to the development of periodontal disease than we are. So we just examine them once a year, and we examine those teeth and gums. So when these things go wrong, yes, it's typically the older pet. And so this is the question I get, honestly, like one in three times. Isn't he, is, are you sure he's not too old for anesthesia? Is he too old for anesthesia? Aren't you worried about his age with the anesthesia? You know, and, and um, the answer to that is no, I don't worry about it as long as we do our due diligence. We do pre-screening, uh, pre-anesthetic screening blood work to make sure all of our detoxification organs are functioning properly, liver, kidneys, make sure our blood count is um, adequate for oxygenation purposes, as well as you know, carrier proteins that are very important in enabling the patient to tolerate anesthesia. And as long as you do a good thorough physical examination, if there's a heart murmur, Maybe think about doing a, an EKG and a quick chest x-ray beforehand to make sure that there's no major concerns there. And then if there's precautions you need to take, you take the precautions. But, you know, by and large, I'm not I'm not worried about anesthesia. We do 10 to 15 dentistries a week. And that doesn't include, you know, the other surgeries we're doing that aren't dentals, you know, such as knee surgeries, abdominal exploratory surgeries, bladder stone removals, spays, neuters. I mean, tons of anesthesia being done in my office every week and an anesthetic related death maybe happens once every three years. So think about the the statistics of that. If we're doing, you know, 20, 30 anesthetic procedures a week and only, you know, we, we get one anesthetic related death once every three years, you know, if that, um, you're talking about an overwhelmingly favorable safety profile. And the greater danger in the end, you know, is ignoring or declining uh, the work that needs to be done because of fear of anesthesia, and then down the road things get things get bad, and the health of the patient's compromised. Guess what? Now anesthesia is dangerous. Guess what? Now we got to do a lot more work to that patient. Things are more expensive. It's more invasive. Um, the anesthesia is longer. It's like you know, it's this vicious cycle that you can get yourself into, and and of course your pet pays the price 
because of this fear of anesthesia. Now, I'm not faulting people. I mean, the concern comes out of genuine concern for the pet, and it's not completely unfounded. Anesthesia is not without risk. We know that. But the risk these days is a lot lower than it used to be. And I think this is, this is, the, big, this is the big influence here, is that veterinary anesthesia in the past wasn't what it is today. Um, you, you had higher end anesthetics, so safer anesthetic agents, safer induction agents. You had really good state-of-the-art intraoperative and anesthetic mo- uh, stability monitoring equipment. But the problem was this stuff was so new, it was so expensive. Veterinarians were unable to get this stuff and still make the procedures affordable for the owners. So the quality of anesthesia wasn't the same as it is today. And I don't know exactly when this transition happened, but I remember it like it was yesterday. It was 1989. I was 14 years old. And my dog, Waldo, was about 11 years old. He was a Cocker Spaniel, and he had what looked like a pretty nasty malignant tumor on his skin. It was on his back. And it was about the size of, you know, probably about diam- the diameter of a quarter, maybe silver dollar. And I remember the veterinarian, like it was yesterday, telling, sitting us down, telling us that thing needs to go. We need to send it off. We need to figure out, you know, what kind of cancer this is. Figure out if I get a complete resection and see what the prognosis is. No matter what that thing needs to go. But I have to warn you, there is the chance your dog may not wake up from anesthesia. And she said it with full conviction. The veterinarian really believed that. And that was a big fear we had, but we had no choice. Luckily, Waldo survived the procedure, and he ended up living a whole other year. He ended up dying of the cancer, but because we had the the main tumor resected, we slowed it down. And um, you know, ultimately, it worked out for the better. He survived the anesthesia, but I remember that 1989, uh, that veterinarian saying to us, you know, he may not wake up. So that was a simple skin tumor resection. I mean, it couldn't have taken or the dog couldn't have been under, now that I know what I know now, for more than, you know, 15, 20 minutes. Um, that to me, I would never say that to an owner. You know, especially I remember when they ran his blood work, it was normal. He had, she didn't mention any, you know, cardiac anomalies or anything like that. She was just concerned about that anesthesia. And it's like, if I had normal blood work on an 11-year-old patient, no systemic concerns, no heart murmurs, you know, the last thing I would say to an owner is, you know, he may not wake up. You know, of course, I tell them, look, anesthesia is not without risk. It's not. It's never without risk, and I can't lie to you and say that, but the overall risk is statistically very, very low. You know, so so things have changed, clearly. Things have changed. And, and you know, by the time I graduated veterinary school in 2002, the the change was well underway, but it, it, it wasn't completed. And to this day, it, it hasn't even um, reached completion um, in terms of, the attitudes in terms of, you know, living in that time. So I remember in 2002, I never once in my veterinary career had this fear of anesthesia that Waldo's doctor had. Um, in, in my veterinary career, I've, I've had the luxury of always, you know, confidently making the recommendation for anesthesia, believing that not doing the procedure was a far greater danger than the anesthesia. Well, I was there in 2002, you know, a 26, 27 year old graduate among, uh, you know, a, a, a older guard of veterinarians that still carried this fear because of course, you know, my boss at the time was 53 years old. He's my first employer, lovely man, great veterinarian. But, um, you know, he walked around with that same anesthetic concern, even though, you know, he had the better anesthetics, he even had the fancy monitoring equipment. 
yet here he's 53 years old and was a lot more reticent to recommend early stage dentistry than I was, for example. You know, I'd see him wait until things were like stage two to three and he's doing extractions before, you know, he's recommending anesthesia. And it, it, it was a carryover from, you know, his generational experience to even his, you know, twilight of his career and, you know, having the safer stuff, knowing better, but in his mind, not being able to let go of the fear. And so you also had this generational change of pet owners that, you know, probably were of that age category, I guess, that, you know, experienced having pets at a time when anesthesia was a bit more concerning. And let's, you know, let's be clear, it was never outright dangerous. I mean, it wasn't like, ooh, 50% chance of dying. No, it was nothing like that. But it happened, I guess, too often for comfort. And, um, you know, you had some of these pet owners that, probably experienced that or, you know, got these grave warnings from their veterinarian before embarking on anesthesia that, you know, your dog may not wake up or your cat may not wake up. And so these pet owners carried it over. And so like the, from, from, from first graduating to, you know, all these years later, and I'm now practicing 12 years, you know, I still hear it and I I find it remarkable. Um, so that, that generation of veterinarians now, you know, let's say, let's say they, Maybe at 53, um, you know, that particular veterinarian was, was, was part of the older guard of that generation of veterinarians, but let's say that goes back another, another 10 years, you know, so, you know, you got that generation of veterinarians, let's say 10 years younger, early forties, you know, they still had a point in their career where they were, you know, living in fear, practicing in fear of anesthesia. And so that, you know, they're reaching retirement age. So, you know, the, the paradigm is changing. The attitudes are changing. The pet owners are a lot more willing to do proactive, elective procedures rather than wait till things are out of hand and let their pet live in pain for fear of anesthesia. But the attitude still persists. And I'm just going to leave you with one one brief story and, and just to put it in perspective. I have a client, lovely lady, um, a registered nurse, interestingly enough, a registered nurse, an RN, sees anesthesia every day of her life in her career. She's got like six pets and she's just terrified, terrified of anesthesia for her pets. Well, she had this Italian greyhound and year after year, I'm watching the, the teeth literally rot out of this dog's mouth. It, got, it was just so bad that, you know, you could see his muzzle was starting to get deformed um, the smell was so offensive that, you know, you, you could, you could pick up on it within three feet of this dog. And when he panted in the waiting room, it actually stunk up the whole waiting room. You know, this is a level of periodontal disease that like you rarely see as a practitioner because normally the owners are like, okay, is enough is enough. But her fear of anesthesia for her pets was so great that she let it slide year in and year out because he kept eating and she just thought, you know, he doesn't seem painful, even though. You know, he reached a point where he wouldn't even let me examine his mouth because just to touch his face was so painful. I kept explaining to her time and again, listen, his quality of life is diminished because of this. You're probably predisposing him to kidney failure. You know, this is very, very bad stuff. But, you know, time and again, she would say no. At any rate, one day her hand got forced. The dog's 13 years old and uh, the, the muzzle, she comes in, the muzzle's all swollen. His eyes are nearly shut. Lymph nodes are huge and the dog's not eating. And his white cell count is off the chart. And, um, you know, basically the dog's developed a severe cellulitis in his face. The bone loss had become so severe that um, the, the, the infection had actually reached the skull. And, 
he was also what's known as septic. So septic means that our infection that was confined to the mouth and now, you know, gone bloodborne. So his white cell count was off the charts. So, so now we have no choice, right? The dog is going to die unless we do something. So he's septic. So we have to do, you know, a full 48 hours on IV fluids and IV antibiotics just to make him remotely stable enough. He hasn't eaten in several days and he's lost weight and he was skinny to begin with. So I have a compromised patient to go into this procedure. And, you know, we don't know how this is going to go because now we're doing anesthesia. That's safe, yes, but we have a compromised patient. There's no sugarcoating that. So we get in there. And basically, I have, you know, this dog was under for like 90 minutes to two hours. And I had to basically reconstruct his maxilla. The maxilla is the upper jaw because he had such little viable bone left. And he had all of these big pits. He actually had what are known as oronasal fistulas. So he had these holes in his upper uh, oral cavity that actually had rotted into his nasal sinus and, you know, created several areas of communication with the nasal sinus. That's why when the dog breathed even out of his nose, it stunk because it was coming out of his, you know, essentially communicating with his mouth. So I had to debride and close all that. And we did a lot of work on this dog and, and um, repair the jaw and all this. And we we're talking two hours of anesthesia, which if she'd done a cleaning, you know, every couple of years, it would have been, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes of anesthesia, quick cleaning, wake up, see you later. Um, and the dog would have had its teeth, but, you know, essentially at this point, um, the, all, the remaining teeth had to go. So the dog had no teeth. He had this, you know, major, major oral surgical repair. And so here's the other problem. Now I'm, I'm going to wake this dog up, but he's not going to eat. And to force feed him would be, you know, agonizing the syringe feed this dog. So I had to place a feeding tube um, in his esophagus. It's called a esophageal feeding tube so that the owner could syringe food into it so we can maintain his nutrition while his mouth healed. Um, you know, that had to stay in for two weeks so we could feed the dog. But ultimately, guess what? Even though he was compromised, even though we went into this procedure with a septic, malnourished, sick dog, um, <laughs> perfect stability under anesthesia, not even a blip on the stability radar uh, because we were, you know, we did the diagnostics. We knew what his problems were. We identified them. Uh, when his heart rate had some issues while under anesthesia, we knew it because we saw it on the monitoring equipment. We were able to give him a quick intravenous medication to raise his heart rate. At another point, my recollection is that his blood pressure dropped a little bit, so we upped his fluids, and that uh, stabilized his blood pressure. And these are the things we do. We make tweaks, we monitor, we, we do what we need to do. Um, and that's why, you know, anesthesia now, the safety of it rivals that of people. And, um, you know, this is a, an important lesson learned. This lady, you know, she made a, a she, she went through a very, very difficult, um, time after this because she realized her mistake and she vowed to never make that mistake again. She felt terrible. And I, you know, I kept telling her, look, you're a good person. You know, yes, yes. Your fear of anesthesia was, was, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. It was irrational and it was a little misguided, but you understand now the consequences. Um, the, the far worse consequence here was letting your dog go septic, right. And live in pain for many years. Um, so let's just not look backwards. Let's look forward. You know, you're well-intentioned, you're, you're, you want to do the best by your pet, and 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 you struggled with that decision, but but you know don't beat yourself up over this. And so if you're out there and you're struggling with the decision to for anesthesia for your dog because there's a recommendation for some elective procedure, whether it be a knee repair, you know dentistry or a you know skin mask that doesn't look good, 
don't be scared of the anesthesia. Ask the proper questions. You know, ask your veterinarian if he's using, you know, high-end cardiac monitoring equipment. Ask him if he's using the safest anesthetics. And, um, you know, if he, he or she is not recommending, you know, uh, routine pre-anesthetic blood work and things of that nature, you know, may, you, you may want to start asking questions or even go for a second opinion. But at the same token, don't fear anesthesia because it's irrational. And the consequences of fearing anesthesia could be very dangerous, far more dangerous than the anesthesia itself. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for tuning in. I appreciate your ongoing listenership, especially through this uh, transitionary period where my time has been pressed to go live. Um, I thank you for, for tuning in and uh, we're going to keep coming to you week to week. We will, I will let you know when we're back to the live format, but in the meantime, I appreciate your patience and have a lovely day. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network, with gig speeds everywhere. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.